Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Perhaps you've given some time to, th- to think about that question. I'm going to turn it around and ask it in a similar way. Which comes first, faith or understanding? Which comes first, faith or understanding? Now, you might not even know this is a question. I've never really given much thought to this question. But, of course, philosophers have thought about this since the early 16th century. In fact, much of our world is formed today in light of the Enlightenment, which centered around these questions of faith and reason. So do we start with faith and then grow to know God, or do we find our way to God through reason and then have faith? These questions were running throughout Europe during the centuries that led up to the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. In these centuries leading up to it, a young theologian began to push against the establishment and to question these big ideas that had been assumed for so many centuries. And of course, culturally in Europe, it was going through a bit of growing pains itself, particularly intellectually. Uh, Great universities began to pop up all over the landscape, and uh, scholars began to study God's Word in a new and different way. In fact, the, the period leading up to the Reformation was known as the Scholastic Period, Uh, where we obviously get the word scholars from. This uh, universities where great thinking was being done. And this renaissance in new thinking, as it swept throughout Europe and the church, one of its brightest thinkers was a man named Thomas Aquinas. And Aquinas was a Catholic theologian. And he was the leading theologian of the day. In fact, one historian said this of him, that he cannot be considered any other than the single greatest theologian of the Western Catholic tradition between him and Augustine in the 5th century. In fact, Aquinas' theology, which was formed there in the early years prior to the Protestant Reformation, still is the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church today. Aquinas was challenged uh, what many scholastics years earlier were teaching, uh, and particularly a man named Anselm of Canterbury, who was a, a student of Augustine teaching, and who championed this, and this is the point we're driving at. I want you to think about this. I believe in order to understand. I believe in order to understand. You see, since the early church Christians believed that faith came before understanding, that one trusts in Christ and then comes to a greater knowledge of Him. But even in this period, and even today, we still are wrestling with this. Whereas Aquinas held that reason led to faith, that one could reason their way to God, and once they came to a greater knowledge, could then have faith. Of course, the problem with this premise, which is what we see in contemporary 21st century thought, is that what happens when we don't think about God? What happens when we don't spend our time thinking about the divine things, these great beings behind us? 
This is why, of course, universities were so popular in Europe during this time, and why, for example, John Calvin would begin his theological treatise known as the Institutes of Christian Religion, not with the gospel, but with knowledge of God. This understanding that this discussion of faith and reason. And friends, what plagues us today is exactly the opposite of what Aquinas taught. Many today see that all they need is faith, that all they need to do is trust God, and we really have little room for knowledge. But I hope to show you this morning that as Christians, we should care about knowledge. We should understand that faith leads to understanding, uh, as Anselm would say, I believe in order to understand. That is our idea that we want to build upon this morning, to understand that our faith must lead to a growing knowledge of God. In other words, we don't just simply believe upon God and stop there, but that we continue to grow in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ until He comes again. God desires us to have faith, for it's by faith that we receive salvation. And nowhere in Scriptures are we taught that we are to understand in order to believe that God exists. No, brothers and sisters, we are told that we have faith and therefore God gives us understanding. And so this is the premise. Faith seeking understanding. That's what we want to drive at. Is that as we have faith in God, He gives us a greater knowledge of Him. A greater knowledge of His goodness and grace. And in fact, this is what Paul has taken up in these early verses of this letter that we're considering in Ephesians. Now, Ephesians is structured in a, in a really interesting way. In the first three chapters, Paul lays the theological foundation. He talks a lot of theology, big head stuff, philosophy, thinking through life and, and how God created us and how God has called a people for his own possession. And then in chapters 4 through 6, he gets practical. He begins to apply the theology of chapters 1 through 3 to everyday life. So, for example, he says that we're called, that we've been elected. Well, that's a wonderful theological truth. But we don't stay there. We don't just say, hey, I'm elect or I've been chosen by God. But rather, in chapter 4, he'll say, work it out. Work out this calling. Work out your salvation. Work this thing out. Live in light of your calling. And so, Paul, as he begins with praising God for what he's done in eternity past, eternity present, and future, he then shifts from praise to prayer. He reflects upon God's goodness, which naturally fuels then his prayer life. And, and Paul prays two really big prayers here in the first few chapters of Ephesians. And the first one we've been considering, and, and will consider in the weeks ahead, as Paul prays, essentially, that the church would know him, God, better. What a wonderful prayer to pray. God, I want to know you better. I want to know more about you. I want to grow in my knowledge of God, not so that I can, you know, impress people at church or so that I can uh, pass some exam, because I desire to know you as one man knows another. I desire to know you intimately. And this is the spirit behind what Paul is praying here in Ephesians chapter 1. Well, this morning we're going to consider just one verse. So don't get, don't get too scared here. Um, 
I hope to give it some thought and for us to just sort of allow this one verse to roll around in our minds for just a moment in our time together. Uh, But to set this one verse as a jewel set among a ring, we want to consider it in its context. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 15. Now again, this morning, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, let me just encourage you to grab one of those Bibles in front of you. It's black. Grab that. Open it to page 976. If you're not accustomed to looking at God's Word, you'll find a lot of little numbers and some big numbers. Look for the big number one, and then go down and find the little number 15. It's there on the uh, left-hand side of the page, and we're going to begin in verse 15 this morning. For this reason... Because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Again, this morning, we're going to consider just verse 18. I pray, Paul says, that you would have your eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Friends, the the point of this passage could be summarized in this way. That as Christians, we pray that the Holy Spirit would illumine our eyes to know God better. To know God better. Our life is a life lived in perpetual growth in the knowledge of God. We want to know Him even as He knows us. And here Paul prays that they would grow in this knowledge and understanding of God's rich grace towards them in Christ. And so the purpose of our time this morning is I hope to grow in the knowledge of God. But as we leave here this morning, we leave not with a novel understanding of God, but a true understanding of this God revealed in His Word. Now, we're kind of coming mid-sentence here, of course, just as verses 3 through 14 is one long sentence, so verses 15 through 23 is one long sentence. So all of you grammarians out there, Paul loved run-on sentences. I mean, just consider this this morning. Uh, but here, we're going we're gonna to think about really three prayer requests. So if you have your Bibles open, I'll, I'll just show you the outline of Paul. He's very linear in thinking, um, and so he's often help, helpful in that. So verse 18, I pray that your hearts might be enlightened, that you may know. Okay, well, what does he want them to know? Well, there's, there's three main things that, God, that Paul wants this church in Ephesus to know. He wants them to know the hope. He wants them to know hope. He wants them to know the hope 
to which he has called you. So that's number one. Number two, he wants them to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So that's prayer request number two. Now prayer request number three, we're going to take up in two weeks. All right, so just hold on. But here it is. It's there in verse 19. Notice the other what statement. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? So Paul wants them to know hope. He wants them to know the riches of being God's inheritance. And he wants them to know the power that is operative, not only outside of them, but in them and through the risen Christ. Well, again this morning, if, if, if you take notes, there's three Three points to this sermon. And first, I want us to consider this prayer that Paul prays. So before we jump into the the, the, sort of the prayer request, there's one big request that is an umbrella request. And that is, Paul prays that their eyes would be opened. He prays for illumination, that they would be able to know God. So we're going to consider that, and then we'll consider those first two of the three requests, praying to know first the hope, and then secondly, that we are God's treasured possession. So first, as Christians, we pray to have spiritual eyes to know God better. So we can't stumble our way to God. We can't find our way to God. God, the Bible tells us, has to take the scales off of our eyes so that we can see, so that we can see him and know him better. Paul continues here in verse 18 to offer the reason for his prayer. The reason Paul prayed was so that God would give this church in Ephesus spiritual eyes to see. Now, for you and I, we didn't live in Ephesus. It would be wrong for us to think that Ephesus is like us. No, Ephesus was a pluralistic culture uh, that was steeped in Greco-Roman mythology. Of course, the, the temple to the great uh, Diana was there. To, to this, this great temple of worship was there. So temple worship, worship of spiritual beings and spiritual powers was all around them. They talked about it in the streets. Not much indifferent to, to perhaps your friends who read horoscopes or go to palm readers. They, they want to access the spiritual realm that is unseen. And the Apostle Paul writes and he says, yes, there is an unseen spiritual world, but you have to have eyes in order to see that world. You need to have the right lenses on in order to see that world. And I pray that you would be able to see that spiritual world, not merely to see what's going on, but so that you can see the one true living God who is spirit. This is why he writes here, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now the word heart there isn't referring to an organ that that pumps blood in your body. Uh, Rather it is a simile, It's, it's seeking to point to a greater idea. It's the spirit of the individual. It's the powerhouse of our intellect, our reflection and our actions. Our hearts are who we are. Jesus, of course, says, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts and wicked deeds, right? Our hearts are, are who we are. It's, it's what we believe. It's how we act. And so this is why he prays that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. He wants their inner being, their inner soul to know God, to have heavenly glasses to see God. See, this metaphor of seeing means this 
See the implication? The fact that Paul's praying for it to God means that you can't go and find these glasses at a store somewhere. You can't go to seminary, you know, where theological education is had and have and there find the glasses. Now you see, friend, God has to give them to you. By the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, he gives us eyes to see. Paul prays for illumination, for the lights to be turned on. This implies that as Christians, God is the one who turns the lights on. We can't turn the lights on ourselves. Jesus would often use this metaphor when speaking to non-Christians or unbelievers. He would call the Pharisees blind guides. Even in his healing ministry, he would heal the blind. Well, that, was that because Jesus just had a heart for blind people? Not at all. He, was, he did have a heart for them, of course. He had a heart for the lame and the sick. He had a heart for sin-sick people. He had a heart for everyone. But the point was, it was an illustration for his disciples that he was the one that would give their spirit eyes to see. The blindness that their spirit was under would, would be awakened. This, this means that to be illumined with the Scripture, to, to come to know God through the Scripture, is a miracle in and of itself. One that I, as a pastor, or, or deacons, or other leaders in the church can't give you. No one can give you these eyes. Only God can give them. This is why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Just how in creation, how there was darkness and God created light, so we are spiritually dark and God gives us spiritual light that we might see and know Him. God opens the blind eyes so that we can see and know Jesus. Notice again what Paul says here in verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. The word that there is a content. There's a purpose behind our prayer. We don't, we don't again have illumination just to have mere knowledge. But that we might know God intimately. That we might know Him. That we might know His will, His purposes. We might know what He's all about. Let me illustrate it this way. You might be familiar with a character in the Old Testament. His name was Caleb. Caleb was one of the 12 spies that was sent as Israel fled from slavery and they marched towards the promised land and they got to right at the precipice of the promised land. Um, Moses and the leaders said, you know what, we need to go over to the land. Let's check it out. Let's not get across the river, because once you get across the Jordan, man, it's over. It's all done. There's no coming back. So let's send some spies out. And so they chose a leader from each tribe of the 12 tribes. And Caleb, he represented the tribe of Judah. And he went with the spies. And they, they went, and, and their eyes were opened. They, they were overwhelmed by what they saw. And they saw great people and powerful armies but they saw fruit, they saw blessing, they saw material blessings. They were like, man, God's hand must be upon these people. And they were afraid. And when they came back and gave the report to Moses, they said, Moses, we've seen people that look like grasshoppers. 
They're huge, they're tall, we're afraid. Moses, here's what we should do. Let's turn around and go back to Egypt. I know we've been chilling here in the wilderness for 40 years, but I think it's probably best that we go back to slavery. And one of the 12 there rose his hand, his name was Caleb, and he said, hey, let me, hold on, hold on, time out. No, 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 no. I saw something different than these guys. Uh, what I saw was that God was going to deliver us into the hand of these powerful people. What I saw was that God promised us that land. That's our land, and we're going to go take it. What was different? Caleb witnessed everything that these, these other 11 witnessed. What, what was so different? You see, God had given Caleb spiritual eyes to see God's will and God's purposes. They seem to us like grasshoppers. But for Caleb, the men who were giants, no, they weren't giants. Because for him, he knew God. And he knew that God was greater than them. You see, these enlightened eyes are what could change a dark, cold Roman prison cell into an evangelistic outpost. Flip over just one page in your Bible. Go to the right to chapter 6. Paul's imprisoned in Rome. He's in a hole in the ground, chained, cold. Execution is coming. Chapter 6, verse 19. He said, hey, church, pray also for me. Hey, when you're praying for yourselves and you're praying for others, pray for me also, verse 19. That the word may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. That I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul had spiritual eyes, didn't he? He had the eyes of his heart enlightened to see the glory of Christ. That, that dark prison cell wasn't the end. It was a means by which God would use to spread the gospel throughout Rome, throughout Europe, and throughout the rest of the world. What seemingly to natural eyes was the end of the road, we finally squashed these Christians, became the precipice by which God would declare his glory around the world. See, Paul could see the eternal purposes that God was working out even in the midst of his suffering. Brothers and sisters, we need spiritual eyes to see our present situations are for his glory. Trials are not meant to keep us from God, but to show us our need for God. And I know one of the prayer requests that's most frustrated, frustrating to you is the prayer request for deliverance. God, heal me. God, get me out of this valley of darkness. And God in his kindness doesn't answer that prayer. Because what you need when you're in the valley of the shadow of death isn't for you to escape but for you to know, as David knew, that you're with me. For your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You see, it's in the valleys of despair that God meets his people. It's in the cold, dark prison cells 
Friend, one of the things I could just encourage you with this morning is begin your regular time in God's Word with a prayer of illumination. Every week as as we gather together, we have a prayer of illumination. It's within the pastoral prayer. We pray, speak, O Lord. Open my eyes that I can see your word. As you sit there at your dining room table or on on your sofa or wherever you study God's word, begin by praying, God, open my eyes that I might know you better. My desire isn't, isn't to know facts about you, but to intimately know you in my own soul. Spurgeon once said that apart from the Spirit, it's easier to teach a tiger to be a vegetarian than an unregenerate person the gospel. What gives us hope is this illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. When you evangelize, that's why you must accompany evangelism with prayer. Friend, you can never convince someone to be a Christian. That's the work of the Spirit. All you are to do is sow the seed of the gospel and let the Spirit do its work. Friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, we are praying for you. That the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened. That you might know what are the riches of God's glory. The hope of glory. We need spiritual eyes to see. Congregation, let us never stop praying for the lost around us, for God is at work. Let me encourage you with this thought, that everyone needs the Spirit of God to know God. Everyone needs the Spirit to know God. From the Hebrew and Greek scholar to the seminary professor to the well-studied preacher, you see, we need it just as much as you need it. You may be here today and you consider yourself uneducated. You may consider yourself someone who doesn't quite understand some of these deeper things. You may not be highly knowledgeable of God and His Word. Friend, let me remind you that you need the Spirit to know God just as much as I do. And that about be an encouragement to you. You see, you don't need a seminary degree. You don't need to know Greek and Hebrew. You don't need to know the original languages in order to know God. One of the good things about God in His Word is the clarity of Scripture. What we know is the doctrine of perspicuity. That God's Word is clear, it's knowable and understandable because God, the the Spirit that inspired it, for if you're a Christian, that Spirit lives in you. And He will open your eyes into truth. So let me assure you this morning that if you pray for the spirit of illumination, this is one of the prayers that God loves to answer us. Well, let's get on with it. Let's look at these two prayers quickly. What are the two prayer requests that he has for us this morning? Number one, we ought to pray to know the hope that you have as God's chosen. One of the themes that we've seen throughout these early verses is that God has chosen a people as his own very special possession. The doctrine of election isn't a doctrine that we ought to run from and be afraid of, but to embrace in all of its glory. That God, from eternity past, has chosen a people for his own special possession. We are his, and he is ours. This is what he prays. Look here again, turning back to chapter 1, verse 18. I pray that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now, Paul's used this word hope previously in the letter, and he'll use it again in chapter 4. He says that they, would, that they were the first to hope in Christ, thinking here of the Apostle Paul and the Jews. And then he, in chapter 4, he says that there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your calling. 
You see, there's one hope for humanity. There's not two ways to get to God or many ways to God. There's only one way. There's only one hope. Whether you're a Jew or not a Jew, there's only one way to God, and that is through Christ. What does Paul mean here by hope? Well, well, hope is the assurance of the things promised. Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is is the promise that God will complete everything He's promised. So let me demonstrate to you this very quickly. Galatians 5.5, Paul says, the hope of righteousness. Or in 1 Corinthians, he calls it the hope of the resurrection. Or in 1 Thessalonians, he says, the hope of salvation. Or in Titus, you heard earlier, the hope of eternal life. Which is it? Hope of salvation, hope of redemption, hope of eternal life. Well, what's our hope? Well, friends, it's all of these things. It's sort of an umbrella word that, that, that sort of encapsulates everything that God is doing in our life for the praise of his glory. Hope is like a, a diamond put in the in a light. You see different colors shining through it. And, and Paul is just sort of putting hope up in the light and he's saying, look at all these wonderful aspects of God's glory. That's the hope of our calling. Paul prays that, that this church would have a greater knowledge of their eternal election in Christ. See, friend, these things are are difficult. Maybe some here today say, well, I understand this, this, this divine election that God has called sinner. Oh, I understand this. Oh, friend, I don't think you do. I don't think you do. You see, there's something mysterious about this, something glorious about it. It's something that we miss. Election is not meant to divide his church. Isn't it interesting that so many churches divide over this matter? Even Christian denominations are sort of formed over this this particular doctrine. God's calling in Christ is meant to instill hope in God's people. it's, It's meant to instill assurance that, hey, this is God's business. This is his doing from beginning to end. And he's gonna work everything out from beginning to end It's no wonder, isn't it, that the enemy would choose this to divide his people over? No wonder that the devil would sow seeds of discord among Christians over the matter of election, being it our only hope, being it the one thing that we rest surely in. One of the things we ought to pray regularly is to know the goal of our salvation. That's what Paul's praying here, to know the hope of our calling is to pray that we would know the goal of our salvation. What's, what's the goal? What's the purpose? Why did God save me? What's this whole business anyways? Why is he doing this? Well, clearly he's doing it for his glory. That's the, the precipice, the, the main idea. But friend, it's, it's our eternal life in the new heavens and new earth. That's the hope of our calling. The new heaven and new earth. That's where we're going. You see, we need God's help to think about this future dwelling. You know, we tend to think about the immediate, the here and now. But what our minds need to be captivated with is the great by and by. When our minds are more captivated by the new heavens and new earth, then our desires for this world will fade and diminish. 
What Paul, need, what Paul knew they needed was their minds to be filled with a world that is so grand and great beyond this world that their souls would be so affixed to that world that they would live in light of that world and not this world. In other words, the Christian life could be described as becoming less and less interested in this world and more and more captivated by that world. That's the Christian life. Friends, what will be ours on that great day will pale into comparison to any trinkets that we accumulate on this earth. I know some of you have been blessed materially. Guard your hearts. Guard your heart. Lest your anchor is in that material possession you have here. Friends, perhaps you have nothing. Praise be to God. Let that be a blessing to you that what you have is anchored there where moths and thieves cannot steal or destroy. Friends, what consumes you today that will be a distant memory in a million years? Parents, perhaps you're frustrated that your children aren't following the Lord. Could it be that you've taught them to anchor themselves here rather than there? If your journey is to there, well, friend, why wouldn't you anchor all of your hopes there and not here? That's the great struggle, isn't it? May our lives match our hope in Christ. This is, the, of course, what Paul will exhort the church to in chapter 4. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Friend, our lives should be informed by this reality, that our hope is in heaven and not here, in whatever hope this world may offer. Well, lastly here, Paul not only prays for a greater knowledge of their salvation, that they would grasp the depth of God's love for them displayed in the gospel, but that they would grow in their assurance of eternal life. Notice what he prays secondly. He prays to know the riches that you have as God's inheritance. You know, similarly to this first one, this second one relates quite naturally. If our hope is in eternity, then of course we understand then what is ours is in eternity as well. Paul prays in this prayer that they would know what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. Uh, Paul wants them to know and understand their inheritance in Christ as God's sons and daughters. I want you to notice, look at the text again. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, earlier, in a few verses earlier, he said that we have an inheritance in heaven. So, verse 11, in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. But notice here, he doesn't say, he, he's not talking about our inheritance. He, he has changed it. Now he's talking about that we are God's inheritance. What a wonderful truth this is, friends. We are His. Paul desired that, that the church would know that we are His glorious inheritance. 
and the riches of that. In other words, he wants them to know how rich it is, how wealthy it is to know that we are gods. That we are gods. Isn't it amazing that the bride that God gives his son for enjoyment is a group of sinners like us? Just think about this for a moment. Who would choose rebels to be invited into his kingdom? Oh, but this is the glory of the gospel. We know how wicked we are. We know how sinful we are. Even today, the thoughts that have rolled through our our minds, the behaviors that have have manifested themselves. Why would God choose me? Why, why Why would he say that I'm his very special possession? F.F. Bruce, reflecting on this passage, writes that God should set such a high value on a community of sinners rescued from perdition and still bearing too many of the traces of their former state might well seem incredible were it not made clear that he sees them as Christ, in them as Christ, as from beginning he chose them in Christ. You see, it's because we're in Christ. It's not because he sees us. No, it's because we are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus that we are made holy. Brothers and sisters, do you feel as a stranger often in this world? This world is weird. My neighbors are weird. My family's weird. Even some church members are weird. You know, one of the telltale signs that you're growing in Christ, growing in the knowledge of Christ, is that this world feels less and less like home. Perhaps you've traveled. I'm a homebody by nature. I don't really like traveling. I do it because I have to. There's nothing like going home, isn't it? The familiar smells, good or bad. I didn't know my house smelled this bad. You know, you know where everything is. The lighting is just how you like it. The bed, there's oh, there's nothing like sleeping in your own bed. Even the shower and the bathroom, it's just it. it, it There's comfort in that. Friend, one of the dangers is when this place feels like home. Part of the Christian life is growing to know there is a greater home than this world will ever be like. And Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus is that they would start seeing that Ephesus is weird. And there's weird people in Ephesus. But isn't it amazing, the number of visitors here this morning, even some of our winter guests that are down here? I don't know about you, but when I'm traveling and I'm around other Christians, even though I want to be home and I'm gathering with other Christians on the Lord's Day, I feel at home. I feel like I'm home. That familiar smell... Oh yeah, of Baptist churches, they all smell the same. Stale, 
goodness. But you're home because you're with God's people. You're with the people who are being formed and shaped and created for this, this other place that you and I are destined to. Oh, friends, may we grow in this knowledge. And may we lastly grow to see how valuable we are in Christ. Your identity is not in who you once were, but in who you are now as God's special possession. Friend, not because you are worthy of such value, but because of your union with Christ, you have been validated. D.A. Carson, the great theologian of our day, writes this, Paul wants us to appreciate the value that God places on us, not because we are intrinsically worthy, but because we have been identified with Christ. We have been chosen in Christ. His righteousness has been reckoned to ours. Our destiny is joint heirs with Him. If we maintain this vision before our eyes of who we are, nothing less than God's inheritance, we will be concerned to live in line with His unimaginably high calling. Friend, are you stalled in your sanctification, in your growth, in grace? Here is the remedy. Put your eyes on that world that is to come. Look to the high calling. You've been called out of darkness into light. You are His chosen one, His very special possession. Do you desire to grow? Then begin with the knowledge of God in Christ. You see, this is the beginning and end. Faith leading to understanding. Friend, don't cul-de-sac your spiritual growth by stopping with faith. Grow to know God better. Incorporate this prayer into your regular prayer life. Pray that you and I would know God better. Pray this prayer for one another. That those around you might know God and know Him better. I end with this. Last week I commended to you a book. and I pray that you would read it. The book is Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And here's a quote from it. What will make heaven to be heaven is the presence of Jesus. Amen. And of a reconciled divine Father who loves us for Jesus' sake no less than He loves Jesus Himself. To see and know and love and be loved by the Father and the Son in the company with the rest of God's vast family in the whole essence is the whole essence of the Christian hope. Listen to his words to you. If you are a believer and so an adopted child of God, this prospect satisfies you completely. If it does not strike you as satisfying, it would seem that as yet you are neither a believer or a child of God. Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes that we may see your glory. 
Lord, we pray that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened today. I pray for the one gathered here in these pews that their eyes have been closed. The ruler of this world has blinded their eyes. I pray the great miracle of the new birth might be upon them as they reach out in faith and trust in this gospel. Their eyes might be open to see and behold your wonder. For the saint this morning who is stumbling their way in the Christian life, I pray, Holy Spirit, awaken them. Give them eyes to see your glory. Give them a glimpse of this eternal hope, this eternal home, that their heads might be lifted to there and that might be the fuel, that might be the remedy that they need to press on. To make Christ Jesus their own, even as you've made them your own. Father, our simple prayer this morning as a congregation, as First Baptist Avon Park, is that we might know you better. Oh, we pray this for your glory and for our good in Christ's name. Amen.